Let's get going. Take your time. I got nowhere to be. No big deal. Callie, you just, you just chit-chat as much as you need to. Well, as our last service in 2023, I don't know about y'all, but the year went very, very quickly. Um, I'm sure next year will be no different. It's, we're, we're continuing on in this series. We're not done yet. We've got, we're on the last leg of it, but we've got a little ways to go yet. As we begin to look at this and say what does this mean? And we began in April as we started this, is looking at what does it mean to be created in His image? And that's something that we have to keep at the forefront of our mind is, is what did God intend? You see, it always comes back to Scripture, is what does Scripture say, but what was the intent behind it? Because we have a lot of ideas, and not all of them are good, but there are a lot of ideas out there that will define these terms because we try to define them through terms that we use. And I've told you guys this story, but a few years ago when I was in the Philippines, and um, we were walking through a mall, and it was a very Americanized mall, and they had all these signs up that said, paint the town red. And uh, I know what that means, and you know what that means, right? But you know who didn't know what that meant? The Filipinos that were with me. And as they were asking, they finally stopped, and they said, Pastor, what does it mean to paint the town red? I said, well, it means kind of go crazy, spend all your money, you know, all that kind of stuff. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Just have a good time and go shopping. And they're like, oh, we couldn't figure out why they wanted the town red. Well, why, why were they confused by that? Well, we know what it means, but they don't because it's not something in their culture. And the problem is, is when we try to read Scripture through the lens of our culture, our understanding, we tend to miss the nuances that are there. I mean, if I tell you that it's raining cats and dogs, nobody's going outside to look. I don't even know where that term comes from. It makes zero sense. No time in the history of humankind has it rained cats and dogs. I don't know. It's rained cats and dogs? I don't want to ask you how you know. Security? That's what it is? Did you guys hear that? Did anybody know any of this information? This is the woman who homeschools my children. So on the mud houses, thatch houses, the animals would be on the roof, and it would rain so hard that they would fall through. Final Jeopardy, y'all. You never know. Wow. What useless information to have. This is wonderful. Hopefully we only go up from here. So. But when we look at it, it's like when we read Scripture, we tend to look at it through this lens of what we have. And so when we hear the term created in His image and after His likeness, we always thought, well, God looks like us. And that might be true. Have you seen God? I haven't seen God. I don't know. I can't paint a picture of him, but we have some semblance of an idea of what he meant because we can actually go back and see how the terms were used. And being created in his image means to be created as his representative. When he said that Jesus was express image of the Father, what did it mean? Did they look alike? Did they have similar beards? Did they wear the same shoe size? Were they both five foot ten on the nose, not five nine and three quarters? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, it's, the point is, is he was the representative of of God on this earth that's what matters that's where things were going and so when Jesus was here doing his work what was he doing was he establishing a church in a sense was he establishing a new religion no not really 
Was he creating a new list of rules of do's and don'ts and things like that? Not necessarily. What he was doing was creating his representative on the earth. Because he came to fulfill the requirements of the law that you and I could be made righteous. Prior to that, we couldn't be. But once he did that, once we received that free gift of salvation, now what? We're created in his image. We're his imager on this earth. We're his representative on this earth. That's why it matters how we live our lives, the things that we say, the things that we do. Do we hold to a biblical worldview? Are we willing to die as a result of that worldview, giving up everything for him? But when we get into this, it's like, okay, that's great. But are we looking at what Jesus did on this earth? In other words, you know, he fed 5,000. That's great. Have we? Probably not. He was nice to people. That's great. But is that what he was after? Was he after a bunch of people who were willing to do good, moral things to uplift those who were downtrodden? It really wasn't what he was after. He was after a group of people who would spread the gospel, preach the word, and do the works that he had continued to do. And he laid out a formula, if you will, for us to do that. The problem is, is our entire lives we've been told that it doesn't work that way. That's not what he meant or some other symbols of this, that we've gotten away from what God had intended for his body. And so we've been in, first, or excuse me, John chapter 15 here. We're going to go there right now. John chapter 15, verse 1. He says that I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it should be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. What Jesus is talking about here is our ability to abide, to stay within the confines. That's what the word means. It means to remain stable or in a fixed state, to stay right here. We know the word abide by the rules means to conform to the rules. To abide by a decision that's made means that you're going to accept it without objection. You're going to go along with it. When he says to abide in me and I in you, what is he talking about? He's talking about staying within him. And he is in us. See, in John 17, that's what he was talking about. Father, show them that I am in you and you are in me and that we are in them. If we break this down, we begin to see what Jesus was getting after. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you look at Scripture, do you realize that Jesus was not going around giving a list of do's and don'ts so that you can get into heaven? He never once, once went up to a disciple and said, let me show you how you can get to heaven. He never once gave an altar call. He never once told people to close their eyes and bow their head and raise their hand. That if you were on a one-way ticket to hell today, you were hit by a bus, run over by a camel, whatever works at that time. Do you know where you would go? That's not what he was doing. What was the purpose of Jesus making disciples to bear fruit? In Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, where we have the parable of the soils, what is the point of the story? It's about 
bearing fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. There's four divisions there. One, not born again. They never give their lives to Christ. Why? Because the enemy comes and steals the seed from their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. Then you've got two, that because of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of life, keep them from bringing any fruit to maturity. And then you've got one that does the 30, 60, 100 fold. What's the point of the story? To bring fruit to maturity. What's the point of John 15? To bear fruit. Why does it matter? Because at the end of this, he says in verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. In other words, in order to be his disciple, what did you have to do? You bear fruit. A tree produces fruit without effort because of the essence of which it is. Apple trees don't try really hard to make apples. They just do it. Because of how they were created and what is in them, the essence of which the fruit is produced. Disciples of Christ produce fruit, not because we're trying really hard to make things happen, because He is in us, and we just can't help it. That is where Jesus was going. That is what Jesus was saying. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who said he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So, does that mean that we follow every manner of what Jesus did on this life if we are abiding in him? Yes, is there anything that Jesus did that is off limits from you and I? No, not according to Scripture. Not according to the words of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Where is God? In him. Where are he? In God. You see, that's the thing that we've got to wrap our heads around. Too much of, a, of the world today has living their life as if God is in this deistic nature where she's, he's up here on this hill and we can't really reach him and we can't really talk to him and we can't really see him and we can't really experience him, but yet we pray and we ask with no expectation of anything really taking place. All we're doing is simply living a life and getting by. But yet Jesus in John 10 said, I came to give you life and give it more abundantly. So what are we doing? And why are we missing the mark? It's because we don't know what it means to be in Him. We have not recognized the fact that we are in Him and He is in us. And that we are one with Him. Are you or are you not the temple of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And what goes with that? Well, it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, quickens and makes alive this mortal body. We can say it. We can quote it. We can recite it. We can regurgitate it. The problem is we don't really believe it. That's the problem. We've not accepted these things as truth. Everything we do when it comes to God is from a position of righteousness. It's from a right position with God. There's only two positions with God. You know how it was like Jew and Gentile or the nations? It was Jew and everybody else. Now it's from a position of right and wrong. In Him, not in Him. Many people will drive to church, but they've never been driven to their knees. They never bowed their hearts before him. And the problem is the church is abiding in something. The problem is it's not in him. 
we're very much abiding in the world. When we recognize that what Jesus was doing was laying out a pattern for you and I to follow, that means everything he said about himself, he was also saying about us. I read this last week in John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, And Jesus spoke to them, saying again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He is the light of the world. And then Matthew 5, verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So he first says that I am the light of the world, and then he says you are the light of the world. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in his house. Let your light so shine before men that you may see the good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So why are you the light of the world? Because that light resides in you, and that light should shine out of you. If you're not letting it shine, you're keeping him bound up. That's the problem. It's kind of like if we truly are the temple. One of the terms, when you talk about this light of the world, when you get back into the context of what was going on, the reason that they referred to that, it was actually the temple. Because when it was very dark, they didn't have streetlights. Okay? And they would set these poles up at the different feasts, and it would be 70 feet in the air, plus the light would be shining out through the temple. And from many, many, many miles away, you could see that light. You could see it exuding all around, and it would tell you where to go. It would bring you to the temple, which is what? Where the presence of God was. Where you had to go to worship Him. And now, you and I, we house the Spirit of God. Then why is that light not shining forth? Because we've got it closed up. We want to see a move of God. The problem is we're sitting still. We're not moving. That is a move of God. He's in us. If we move, He moves. If we speak, He speaks. If we lay on hands, He lays on hands. This is exactly what Jesus did. He came to show us the will of the Father. And then He told His disciples, do everything that I just did. Oh, by the way, you're going to do greater things. Because I go to the Father. But we've accepted mediocrity. We've just sat back and we just go to church and we just do our thing and we just, we read the Bible and we study and I love that. Man, I, I get excited about finding new things and, and learning new things and, and spending hours and sometimes weeks and sometimes months researching a topic and getting a revelation on something or seeing something I'd never seen before or whatever. I love every part of that. But you know who else did that? The Pharisees. And the very one that they were waiting for was standing in front of him, and they didn't like him. They wanted to have him killed. Knowing about God and knowing God are not one and the same. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Verse 6. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So rooted and built up sounds like what? Being in the vine. He's the vine, we're the branch. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. Now, He says here, that he is the head of all principality and power, correct? In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, correct? That's what it says. Now, here's the part that we've been missing. 
You see, much of the church today is sitting around waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to move, waiting for a special anointing, waiting for someone to pray for them, waiting for a prophecy, waiting for something, as if we are lacking something. But what did he just say here in verse 10? You are complete in him. So if you are in him, what are you lacking? Nothing. It's all at your fingertips. Then why are we not moving? We live our lives like we're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for God to give us something that we need. But the reality is, is it's in us from the very beginning, from the moment that we are born again, we have everything that we need. But we have to learn to walk in it. We have to learn to accept what God has said is true. And the reality is, is we got to ask ourselves this question, do we really believe God's word? Do we really believe it? Because when you really believe something, it affects the way you live your life. It affects the words that come out of your mouth. It affects the way that you think. Everything is affected by it. We watched it during COVID, right? We believed that it was instant death. The media was telling you that you can't go out and all that. What did people do? Hunkered down and hid. Was that reality? Wasn't reality. But that's what happened. Why? Because we accepted their word as truth. But what if we would put that same gusto into the words of God and what he said is true and began to live our lives as he's truly in us we're lacking nothing we are his hands and feet and we have the same abilities that he did that we can be his representative on the earth what would happen if we began to live our lives in such a way well things would begin to change and so what I want to focus on today is this idea of faith of what it means what it doesn't mean and where it comes from because this really is the cornerstone of everything. It's the cornerstone of everything that we believe. Because it takes faith in order to be here today. Because you wouldn't come here if you did not believe that God's word was true. So we're going to go to Hebrews 11. And I'm going to begin to show you guys this stuff. I want you to begin to see it. I'm going to break it down as we go through it. But I want you to watch what happens here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. So now if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this. The, the word faith simply means trust, a belief. It's trusting in Him. Unfortunately, the way faith is used today in our culture, it just means blind. There's no evidence, there's no nothing. That is not what faith means. It simply means trust. As you guys prepare to leave today, many of you have faith that when you put your key at the ignition and turn it, it's going to start. You're not worried about it, are you? Why not? Unless you've been having problems, then your faith is that this car's a piece of junk. It's time to replace it. But you don't worry about that. There is so much in life that we do not worry about, that we have faith in. How many of you guys are scared to death that when you go to sleep at night, you're going to stop breathing? Most of us know. We have faith. Why? Because we trust Him. We have seen time and time again that I've never woken up not breathing. Took some of you a second, but I'm glad you got there. That's good. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things that are not seen. Are we hoping for things from God? Well, of course we are, and he's going into this. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. It says, by it, what is it? Faith. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Now, who are the elders? We'll call them the Old Testament saints. Remember, this is the book of Hebrews. It was written by a Hebrew to a bunch of Hebrews. 
So if you don't understand the Old Testament, you will miss out on the nuances of this book. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Why is it by faith that we believe that God created the world? Because we're taking Moses' word for it. Were you there? I know some of you are a little older. Maybe you were, you were close. We weren't there. We didn't see it. In fact, if, if you're coming on Wednesday nights, we're about to get to a part where God kind of chases Jones and says, where were you when the sons of God sang out as I laid the cornerstone of the earth? We weren't there. We, we, we simply accepted as truth based on the testimony of Moses who wrote down in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that came thereafter. It's by faith because we were not there to see it. So by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. See, if you are there, you don't have to have faith because you saw it for yourself. You don't have to have trust. I saw it take place. Look at what verse 4 says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gift, and through it, he begins, uh, he being dead, still speaks. Now, why was it by faith? You see, you've got to get the mindset of what it means. Cain and Abel both brought an offering. Cain brought up the fruit of the ground. Most people tell you that it was just a bloodless offering, and that was the problem. That was not the problem. It says, in the process of time, Cain brought an offering. And then it says, Abel brought up the first fruit of his flock and the fat thereof. So he brought the first and the best. Why is it that it takes faith to bring of the first and the best, but not to just bring something? Well, at that point in time, being an agricultural community, they, when that calf was born, you have no idea if that mom will ever have another one. There's no guarantees. That might be the only baby it ever has. So by bringing that to God, what are you doing? I'm trusting God that he will open the womb again and he will meet all of my needs. When Cain got around to it, he gathered up a few things and brought it to God. Was that by faith? No, he waited to see what his harvest looked like and then what was out of it, he's like, okay, I'll bring some. That's not faith. That's not trusting God. It's by faith when we bring the first and we know that God is going to take care of it. Because now my faith is in God's ability to take care of me and not my ability to meet my needs. You guys see the difference? That's why it's by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How do we please God? We come to him by faith. Can you please God without trusting him? No. When we come to God, we're coming to him by faith. We recognize ourselves as sinners. We recognize ourselves as needing a savior. And the only way we can come to him is trusting in what he has done on our behalf. Because what did they do before? Could they bring a sacrifice to atone for their sins? Yes, they could. Absolutely. They bring it every year, the Day of Atonement. The nation of Israel would be atoned for again, as long as that high priest didn't screw nothing up. So what faith did they have? They had faith in God's Word, because God told them that on the Day of Atonement, 
you have two rams and you bring them and all the other stuff. They knew what God said he would do. You see, here's the thing. Faith is accepting what God has said as true. That's really what it comes down to. It's believing his words. We cannot please God without trusting him. And sometimes in order to trust him, we have to step out first for God to meet us. Look at Cain and Abel. Abel stepped out. I am bringing this first fruit offering. Cain didn't. He waited to see what was happening and then he brought something and you guys know how the story goes. What if God, in order for us to truly live by faith, requires that we step out first? It's kind of like the area of healing. What happens when people say, like, oh, I know you prayed for me, and when it stops hurting, I promise I'm going to get moving. But what if we started moving first? What if we started living our lives like what God has said is true and that he actually performed what he said he was going to do? What if we started doing that? See, that's by faith. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What you need to understand is that last statement there is the cornerstone of everything that we've read. It's the cornerstone of everything with God. He who promised is faithful. Do we trust God? Do we believe God? Do we believe His Word? Do we really believe that we've been transformed from darkness to light? From death to life? Because we keep trying to get things from God, but it's in us the entire time, according to Him. We're not walking in it, but it's certainly there. Why are we waiting on God to do something greater? We're all waiting for God to move. God's already moved. He's waiting for us to catch up. Look at Hebrews 11.11. It says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. It's interesting. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Hebrews 10, 23 said? He who promises faithful. She judged him faithful who had promised. She had accepted what God had said as fact and therefore was willing to move to accept that truth. Look at Hebrews eleven seventeen. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac and he... And, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, this is the child of promise. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child. We're going to go read that here in a minute because I want you to see the nuance here of what faith looks like. But God had promised him that he was going to have a child. And then God comes to Abraham and says, I would like you to go and kill that child. And Abraham says, okay, does that make any sense to you? It doesn't. Let's look at this. Genesis chapter 18. Because it's one thing to read it, but you've got to go see what was going on. I thought about doing this all the way through the entire book of Hebrews, or chapter of Hebrews 11. I decided against it because we'd be here forever. But I want you to see this one. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet 
and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, we'll do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. He took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then he said to them, where is your Sarah, your wife? He said, she, uh, here in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, as you guys know, they've been unable to have a child. Okay? It was the one thing. Right now, a servant was going to be his inheritor. And that was the desire of his heart that he would have a child. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, understand this. This is what's going on. How many old people? They, they say like 80s, 90s. How many of those are having babies that you know? None. Right? I've yet to meet one. Things stop working at a certain point. The pamphlets go out the window. It doesn't matter anymore. And so when God said that Sarah is going to have a child, what was her first reaction? Rise. So I'm old, and the guy you're talking to is old, and uh, that just don't work like that. But what did we read in Hebrews 11? She judged him who promised as faithful. And you guys know the story. They ultimately have Isaac. They went through some hoops to get there, but they had Isaac at the appointed time. But the difference here is that this is what I want you to see. Initially, what was she thinking? Carnally. But then God scolds her and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? So she judges him who promised as faithful. And what happens then? She starts thinking spiritually. Carnally minded. Spiritually minded. But now let's jump to Genesis chapter 22. Isaac's born. Life is good. They're living his life. He's not a little boy here. He's, he's probably a grown man. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering uh, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, you and I wake up one morning, okay? We've been at a time of prayer and fasting. And God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to go up on a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. If that happens to you, you are required to immediately call me, because we're going to fix this problem. You would, I hope, begin to question it. Now, I will tell you, having a son named Isaac, there are times that thinking about sacrificing has crossed my mind. Okay? There's something in that name. I don't know what it is. But, when we look at this, you and I, put yourself in the situation. God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. This is the son that you've been promised, that you've been waiting for. This is the heir, a parent of your kingdom, a, a fulfiller of the promise. 
What does Abraham do? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So what did he do? He went. Didn't blink an eye. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Did he hesitate? No. Not one bit. You should be questioning Abraham's sanity. Now, you guys know that this is a type of shadow. You guys have the ability to look back in time, and we know the fulfillment, and we know all of this stuff. But you should put yourself in this situation and say, Abraham, are you out of your ever-loving mind? Most of us would be casting the demons out of Abraham at this point. But we just kind of read this all colorful, like, oh, that's cute. He's just going to kill Isaac. No big deal. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we know the story. We know how it goes. And, and guys, there's so much more to it. This is so rich in this passage and what takes place. I spent two years teaching through the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights, and it's incredible if you watch how this all breaks down and the types and shadows that are in there. But the, the question comes back to is why Abraham? Why on earth would you do this? You know what God has said. You know what God had promised, and he tells you to kill your son, and you don't question it. At least Gideon was like, okay, if this is really you and what you want, then, then put the dew on the ground and not on the fleece. And then he does, he's like, okay, but just in case, this time put it on the fleece and not on the ground. And then he does, and he's like, okay, I guess I have to go now. Abraham didn't blink an eye. Why not? Look what he says, Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Verse 19, this is the, the key right here. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Why is that? He knew what God had promised. He had promised that in Isaac his seed shall be called. Therefore, when God told him to sacrifice him, what did he know? God will raise him up from the dead because God made a promise, and he who promised is faithful. In Genesis 22, verse 15, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time out of heaven. He said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, 
All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and they went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. You see, the reason that Abraham had no problem with that is because he who promised had made a promise of what Isaac was going to do. And it didn't matter what happened to Isaac, God would fulfill his promise. He who promised is faithful. That's faith. That's trust. That's belief. It's accepting what God has said as fact and not letting the circumstances surrounding us dictate in any way what truth is. That's the problem we have today. We're not spiritually minded. We are very much carnally minded. We seem to think that we're lacking something if maybe if I pray more, give more, fast more, go to church more, whatever, that I'll get this thing from God. But he says, you are the fullness of God. You have everything. You are complete in Him. So what are we lacking? The answer is nothing, but we don't believe it. You know what we have no problem accepting on faith? That we'll spend eternity with God. We believe that wholeheartedly. Do you know why that is? We're not faced with death daily. But we are faced with some hardships at times, persecutions at times, sickness at times, sometimes financial problems at times. But he who promised is faithful. See, that's the thing. It's a matter of trusting what he has said. And it doesn't matter what this world has to say on the matter. It is all about him. Isaiah 25, verse 1, it says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Faithfulness. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Numbers 11, verse 21. And Moses said, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? They're going through the wilderness. They've been eating manna. They're getting tired of manna. God says, all right, I'll send some birds your way. And Moses is arguing with him. Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. You'd be thinking, Moses, what more do you need to see? I mean, the whole, hey, ten plagues, hey, Red Sea, hey, we just got all this stuff done. Oh, but meat? Oh, man. Manna from heaven. They wake up every day with bread on the ground. Wouldn't that be sweet? I mean, what more do you need to see? But it was a continuation. Why? Because he's beginning to trust God more and more and more. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. So they are, they are Hanukkahing, they're dedicating the temple here. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he is with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself 
to walk all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgment, which he commanded our fathers. You see, we've gone through the old, just different parts of the Old Testament, and where was God not faithful to his word? If they kept the commandments, he promised blessings. Did he provide them? Absolutely. If they broke the commandments, he promised cursings. Did he provide them? Absolutely. What did God promise that he wouldn't do? See, God had promised that he would send somebody as a propitiation on our behalf to live a sacrifice so that you and I could be made right before God. Did he do it? Absolutely. He actually said he was going to send them through a virgin. Did he do it? Absolutely. He said that person is going to die. He's going to be buried. And then three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. Did he do it? So what will he do and what will he not do based off of his promises? He will do everything that he said he will do. So what promise of God are you not believing? The truth is, is there are many. Because we do not live our lives in faith with God. We live our lives that God's here and he's around us and he's near us. And maybe, just maybe, he'll answer my prayer. You are lacking nothing. It's time to live our lives as if that's true. It's time to live our lives as if God truly is in us. That we are in him and he is in us and we are one. That where God starts and we stop, we can't tell the difference because we are the righteousness of God in Christ and we are doing the greater things that he has told us to do. Look at one more, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledgement of the truth which God, uh, which, uh, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. This is just an introduction and a letter that Paul's writing to a man named Titus. But what does he say? Eternal life that God had promised before time began. Will he fulfill that promise? Absolutely. Will he take care of you financially? If you let him. Will he take care of your health? If you let him. You see, it's time for the church to actually wake up and do the things that we talk about. We have a weak and powerless church because we don't really believe what he has said. And we don't really believe that he who promised is faithful. There's a reason that those men and women in Hebrews 11 are listed. And it says at the end, and time would fail me to talk about Samson and Jephthah and all these other ones. Because they accepted what God had said as fact. Did they ever waver? Of course they did. We see it. But when they accepted what he said is true, God always fulfilled his promises. We've got to see ourselves through the lens of what God has said. Who we are in relationship to him is everything. And start believing it and living it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that there is no promise that you have given us that you will not fulfill. There's no guarantee from you that you've given us that will not happen. That we can walk in the reality of the power of your word and the power of your spirit and that our lives can be examples to the world of the goodness of God that they may see through us the light of the world and that that light has come to drive out the darkness and in us is life, life everlasting. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead quickens and makes alive these mortal bodies, Lord, that we do not walk as the world walks, but we walk in the fullness of the power of that you have established for us, that we are created new in you and there is nothing that can come against us that will prosper that we don't allow. 
the only weapon formed against us that will, that will prosper is the ones that we allow. And so, Lord, I thank you that we open our eyes and our hearts to you, to hear from you, to be made new by you. And, Lord, that we will begin to believe everything that you have said. I thank you, Lord, that everything we do is to bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Have a happy new year. See you next Sunday.